right, welcome back to From Aid Arbitration. Uh, today, got a, a special guest, Mr. Cole Billups, is going to handle today's episode. Now, Cole, if you remember, is the one who has saved me on many episodes because I don't know what I'm doing electronically. And so uh, Cole will set up my, when I have a guest outside of my uh, palatial studio, he is the one who helps me with that. So uh, he asked the other day if he could get on here and do an episode. Uh, he made up a template for himself, uh, kind of getting back to the basics. I said, absolutely. Uh, he's done so much for me. I'll let him get on here and do an episode. He has pre-recorded the episode, and now he's fixing to help me splice this episode into the end of what I'm fixing to say here. So uh, it'll go well because he's handling it. I'm not. And so, uh, Cole, I appreciate him so much uh, as one of those that has stepped up to help me out the most, and uh, I can't thank him enough. Uh, next week, I'm going to get uh, in-depth on stationary events. I know I've handled that in an episode before, I think episode 11. But a lot of this one being handed out now based off stationary events because a lot of carriers are acknowledging that they've been stationary in the investigative interview. We're going to beat that both ways. We're going to beat it first way by them looking at us, uh, using covert techniques, spying on us. Secondly, we're going to beat it even if we acknowledge it in the investigative interview. Even if we admit guilt, which we should never do, we should make management do their homework. When you admit guilt, their homework is over with. They no longer need to do anything because we admit guilt. But if we admit guilt, we're still going to beat it, okay? Uh, so we're going to talk about that in depth next week. Uh, I'm going to cover that as well as it can be covered. I'm going to give you an issue statement, uh, an information request, and we'll get some sites for you and a remedy requested. So we're going to cover all that next week because people continue to send me discipline uh, based off of stationary events. Uh, it's coming off these memos. I've talked about that too much, but also I'm going to talk a little bit about why as a union are we uh, treating management with kid gloves. Uh, we are absolutely treating management with kid gloves uh, when it comes to how we treat them and how they treat us over similar situations. We do not go for the throat like they do. Management will go for the throat on us, talking about removals for things, and we won't even so much as get a cease and assist from them off of the same thing. So why, as a union, do we treat management with kid gloves? I'm going to talk about that next week. going to have some examples for you because we need a change at the hierarchy. Whoever the president is this week of this union, I don't know who the president is. We keep, It's kind of a rotating door right now. Uh, we need we need them to stand up and tell those below them, quit treating management with kid gloves. Quit doing that. Let's take them to task in arbitration. We're not doing that. So we need to get our head out of our ass as far as that's concerned. Uh, but that'll be next week as well. So I'm going to call out some business agents. You know I don't call names, but there are business agents that are failing their members terribly as far as treating management with kid gloves, kissing management's ass, uh, we Some of the biggest ass kissers in the union are business agents. They will kiss management's ass all day. I don't know whether they just like that or what, but I'm going to call them out next week. So make sure everybody listens. Uh, if nobody's ever heard of this podcast, tell them to listen next week because we're going to attack stationary events. 
shop stewards, city carriers, formal aides, branch presidents, business agents office. Listen next week. I'm going to tell you how to beat stationary events, management disciplining us off of stationary events. Whether we don't admit guilt or we do admit guilt, we're going to beat it both ways. All right. So that's what we're going to talk about next week. Also, our ass kissing NBAs. We're going to talk about them as well because we got a lot of them. So anyway, I'm going to get off of here. Get on to formatearbitration.com. Make sure you're getting on there. Uh, if you know of an episode, go down to episodes, scroll down to it. Everything you're going to need as far as sites, as far as contentions, most of the time will be on that. Also, from Aid Arbitration, I haven't done this in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to do it today, but from Aid Arbitration, the Facebook page, make sure you get on there. A lot of good stuff. Discord is, is booming. So get on Discord. A lot of great stuff going on Discord right now. If you're going from aidarbitration.com, it'll have the link to Discord. Reddit. A lot of great stuff going on Reddit right now. That, that dude is amazing with the stuff he puts up. It's hysterical. But also a lot of good conversation going on on Reddit. And so make sure if you get on from aidarbitration.com, the link for Reddit is on there as well. Okay. So I'm going to jump off of here. I'm going to splice in Mr. Cole Billups, who I appreciate more than he knows for the things that he's done to help me out with this uh, podcast. So I'll see y'all next week, uh, and we'll talk about a few things and uh, get everybody you know to listen to it because we're go it's going to be a very in-depth, detailed uh, episode on stationary events, uh, a little bit more than episode 11 because I didn't know at that time it's going to be rampant like it is today because of these memos that we signed. So anyway, here's Cole Billups. Y'all enjoy him, and uh, he's going to get back to some basics for you, all right? Thanks. Bye. Well, I just want to give a big thank you to Corey right out of the gate for even just letting me be on here. Um, I don't feel qualified at all to be here, um, but I'll uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself, uh, how this episode came to be. Uh, but y'all forgive me if my country accent comes out too much. Uh, we were gone all weekend to Raleigh at the North Carolina State Convention, and we had a great time there. Very busy time, as some of you know how busy those can be. Um, we got a lot done, uh, made a lot of new friends, reconnected with a lot of old friends. And um, but when I get tired, uh, as I as I am, uh, my country accent comes out a little bit. So y'all just bear with me. Um, but like Corey said, my name is Cole Billups, and I'm a shop steward in Asheboro, North Carolina. And I've been doing that for uh, maybe two years now, I guess it is, uh, which is certainly not the longest time. Um, but over that short amount of time, I've made an effort to learn everything that I can possibly learn, uh, but I've certainly not learned everything. Um, I'm always learning something, whether it's listening to this podcast, whether it's talking to my branch president talking to former branch presidents from my office, whether it's talking to other presidents and other offices around the place, around me, um, or if it's getting there in the Ada Arbitration Discord. I'm always in there asking some kind of question. Sometimes I have the answer to one, but for the most part, I'm in there asking stuff. Um, but, but yeah, I, I want this episode here to, um, to be helpful to you. Let me tell you how this episode came to be then. Um, I 
was talking with somebody in my office the other day about, you know, maybe becoming a steward, um, thinking about it, and I wanted to tell them, you know, what it looks like to even be a steward, and and I kind of struggled off the top of my head, you know, because I wanted to tell them not only what it is to be a steward, um, but what it takes to file a, a grievance file. And like I said, I struggled. Um, so I came home and later on that day, I came home and I, I, I sat down and, well, I just started typing because uh, I, I love to write um, something I think I'm okay at. Um, certainly there are betters out there, but, but I like to write. And when I started writing, I thought, well, why don't I just do it in the style of a From Eight Arbitration episode? Mainly because I think the, the, the training style is very good. It's conversational and it's very detailed. So I just started writing and I titled my little paper there, The Anatomy of a Grievance File. And I wound up with 11 pages. Um, <laughs> so this thing's going to be pretty detailed. Um, I've gotten a lot of feedback from my branch president and um, one of my friends that I've gotten to know through the From Aid Arbitration Discord, uh, Tim, thank you very much. I sent this thing to him originally, and I said, hey, I wrote this, this outline, and I'm thinking about sending it over to Corey. You know, maybe he can put it on the podcast or something. I don't know. And he read over it, gave me some really good feedback there. Uh, I made some changes. And, well, I sent it over to Corey, and I guess he liked it um, because he asked me to be here today. Um, so, yeah, I am nowhere near as experienced as anybody else that's ever been in this podcast. I'm nowhere near as qualified as anybody else has ever been in this podcast. Um, but I really do appreciate the opportunity, and I'm going to try to make it helpful to you. Um, so. Like I said, I've titled it The Anatomy of a Grievance File, and that title doesn't really ring true, to be honest with you, um, because, well, it's much more than just the grievance file, and you'll see that as I go on. Um, so, like I said, I've titled it that, but the first thing we've got to understand is how we even go about filing a grievance, and more importantly, what even is a grievance? So. I say that because I want this episode to be primarily, I want it to be for everybody, obviously, but I want it primarily to be for you guys who are brand new shop stewards um, and you guys who maybe are thinking about becoming a shop steward and you, you don't really know where to start. So I want this to be the place that you start. And I want you to leave out of here and go learn more. Because I can't tell you everything because I don't know everything. So let's just jump right into it. Um, I've already, wow, I've already spent almost five minutes here just, just yapping. So um, what is a grievance? Well, page 15, one of our JCAM tells us a grievance is defined as a dispute, difference, disagreement, or complaint between the parties related to wages, hours, and conditions of employment. A grievance shall include, but is not limited to, the complaint of an employee or of the union, which involves the interpretation, application, or compliance with the provisions of the agreement or any 
Local Memorandum of Understanding Not in Conflict with This Agreement. So I want to talk a little bit about each piece of that um, and hopefully help you to understand what our contract is saying there. Um, Wages is the first one. Obviously, I think we all know what wages are. That's how we get paid. Probably our favorite part of the contract. Hours, again, we're probably all pretty familiar with our hours. That's how soon we get to go home. And But the last one, the conditions of employment, uh, it, it's pretty broad. Um, but that covers pretty much everything else that we talk about. You know, that covers improper instructions from management. It covers... Um, it, it it covers anything they do wrong when it comes to your OWCP, if you have to file that. So I just want everybody to be um, a little bit more familiar then, like I said, with all the with all the different parts and all the different types of grievances that we can be filing. So the very first thing I want to do, though, on this note, is I want to make a note here that when we're writing and processing our grievances, we use the JCAM. And you may hear contract, national agreement, JCAM, all used seemingly interchangeably. Um, so I want to clear up a little bit of confusion on that first. So the contract and national agreement, they're the same thing. Um, the NALC and the USPS, they bargain at the national level and they reach a national agreement or contract. And after an agreement is reached, the parties jointly develop a joint contract administration manual. And the very first page of that thing goes on. It says in part here, it's a, a full page, but jointly prepared by the NELC and Postal Service, the narrative portions of the manual explain how the contract should be applied based on national grievance settlements, arbitration awards, and agreements. And then we go on further and we look at page 15.2 of our, of our contract, of the JCAM actually, and it says in part, both parties must use the JCAM as their guide to the contract. So our contract is very long and detailed. Our JCAM is more detailed. And the reason that we do that is there are parts of our contract that have been ruled on by arbitrators. There's been parts of our contract that have been interpreted um, through MOUs. Those are the M documents you hear us talk about a lot. And rather than kind of forcing you to know every MOU that's ever been signed, uh, a lot of those agreements are worked into our JCAM, our Joint Contract Administration Manual. So get you a JCAM. Your branch should have one. Um, I have one at the branch office, and I bought myself one just to keep it home, you know, because I, I often find myself reading it. But you can find it also on NELC.org. You go to the Resources tab. And then JCAM is right there. So that's the very first place we want to start. We need a JCAM. All right. So now that we know that, now that we're cleared up on that, how does a grievance even progress? Well, again, we're going to look here at Article 15. And it tells us all the different steps of the grievance procedure. And it tells us the time limits for each of those steps also. So the first step is the informal step A. And this is a discussion between the shop steward and the immediate supervisor. And your time limit on that is 14 days. Okay. The next step is the appeal to the formal step A. So if you're unable to reach a resolution at the informal step A, you have to appeal that 
the formal step A. And Article 15.2, informal step A, C, tells us that our time limit to, to appeal that is seven days. And it says, if no resolution is reached as a result of such discussion, the union shall be entitled to file a written appeal to formal step A of the grievance procedure within seven days of the date of the discussion. Such appeal shall be made by completing the informal step A portion of the joint step A grievance form. At the request of the union, the supervisor shall print his or her name on the joint step A grievance form and initial, confirming the date of the discussion. In my office, we use a separate written appeal. Um, I've got a template that I fill out, and it just includes the local case number, the date of the informal meeting, uh, and the name of the formal step A representative for the union. And because we're a small office, um, I go ahead and get that over to my installation head along with the copy of all the documents shared at the informal meeting. Uh, and then he and I both sign and date it, and the original just goes in the file, and he keeps a copy. The next step is the formal step A. This is a meeting between the formal step A representative, and in small branches, this is most likely going to be your branch president, and the installation head. Part of the feedback I got on this thing was that I didn't talk about what the installation head is, and I think it's very important to do that because you, you've probably never heard that before, or you may have, and you just don't know. That's going to be your postmaster or your OIC, whichever that you have. Um, so when you see installation head, just know that's your postmaster. So your time limit to do the formal step A is seven days. So again, we're in Article 15.2. This time we're in formal step A. Section C, and it says the installation head or designee will meet with the steward or a union representative as expeditiously as possible, but no later than seven days following receipt of the joint step A grievance form, unless the parties agree upon a later date. In all grievances at the formal step A, the grievance shall be represented for all purposes by a steward or union representative who shall have authority to resolve the grievance as a result of discussions or compromise in this step. The installation head or designation also shall have authority to resolve the grievance in whole or in part. And then we go on here a little bit down, 15.2, formal step A, section E. A resolution of a grievance in formal step A shall be in writing or shall be noted on the joint step A grievance form, but shall not be precedent for any purpose unless the parties specifically agree so or develop an agreement to dispose of similar or related problems. The most key language in our contract as it relates to grievance remedies is right there. So just remember, you must make your remedies enforceable for the future. And I'm going to talk about that a lot more at length when I get to the remedy section, okay? The next step, if we're unable to resolve it at the formal step A, is our appeal to step B. And again, our time limit is seven days. Article 15.2, Formal Step A, Section E. If the grievance is not resolved at Formal Step A, the union may appeal it to Step B within seven calendar days of the Formal Step A discussion date unless the parties agree to an extension of time for appeal. That is everything that's handled at your office. The rest of it, it goes out. Okay? So the next step then is our Step B, and that's our dispute resolution team. And this is, like I said, the very first time that the grievance leaves the installation. And at this step, a member of the union and a member of management get together and discuss the facts and merits of the case and attempt to reach a resolution. And if they're unable to do that, then it goes to arbitration. 
And at this step, a neutral arbitrator hears the facts of the case as presented by both parties in the setting of a hearing. And if you're listening to this episode, you probably already know about it. Um, I'm going to stay in my lane, like, I, like I've said from time to time here. I'm the informal step A. Stay in my lane. If you got questions about arbitration, get a hold of Corey. Uh, he's your guy. Listen to the episodes. Um, just don't ask me because I don't know. Um, but like I said, I'm primarily going to be discussing the informal step A. And I'm going to do that because knowing how to identify a grievance and process it can be the most intimidating part for a new steward. And I want this just to be another tool that you can use just to curb that fear of not even knowing what to do or where to start. So the very first thing, you've become a steward. All right. You're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I think management's violated the contract. Now what? Well, as a shop steward, you're the first line of defense for your members. And you're often the person who helps the new CCAs and newly converted regulars to navigate this complex system that we call the contract. So if you believe a violation has occurred, the very first thing you want to do is write down the date that the potential violation happened. Because you have 14 days to process the file and meet at the informal step A. Now, as we just went over, this is the longest period of any step of the grievance procedure. But if you miss that 14 days, it doesn't matter how strong your case against management is, you can and probably will lose on procedure. All right, so we've wrote down the date. I like to carry a little notebook in my shirt pocket. It helps me out with that a lot because um, I just can't remember everything. Um, and I want to put, put some emphasis there on the date of the potential violation. So if it's Monday morning and one of your carriers walks up to you and says, hey, um, and explains the situation to you and you think there's a grievance and they say that it happened on Saturday, you write down Saturday's date. Okay, so, so from then, Sunday is day one. And you have your 14 calendar days. All right. Now you need to request your time. And page 17.5 of our JCAM, so it's in Article 17, tells us some key information about how we request time. And this should be the majority of our reading done. As soon as I'm done reading this, um, hopefully I hadn't put you to sleep yet. But it says, although a steward must ask for supervisory permission to leave his or her work area or enter another one to pursue a grievance or potential grievance, management cannot unreasonably deny requests for paid grievance handling time. Management may not determine in advance how much time a steward reasonably needs to investigate a grievance. Rather, the determination of how much time is considered reasonable is dependent on the issue involved and the amount of information needed for investigation purposes. Now, they say it right there, how much information is needed. So, along with my time request, I'm generating a request for information. And, you know, if it's like, say if it's an Article 8 grievance, I'm going to get my tax employee everything reports for all the carriers, the ODL sign-up sheet, the daily overtime mandate roster. Maybe I get the off-day mandate roster. You know, they, they go through, make sure they're staying in seniority sometimes. Um, but I want to make a note here that it's very important you can always request more information and time both. So if you get in there and you think, oh, I'm almost running out of time, I'm not done here yet, that's fine. Request more time. They have to give it to you. If you realize, oh my God, I forgot to request the schedule that I need for this grievance, request it. Even though you request as much as you need. So to do that, I like to use fillable PDFs for all my requests. And 
Um, I've got several of those. Uh, I'll get them over to Corey. Hopefully we can get those put up on the, uh, from arbitration.com for you. Um, you know, use those. Um, you can, you can use anything you want to use, but I like to have the, like I said, the fillable PDFs. I just type them in, print them out. And from there, I get them over to my supervisor. Now, in my station, I have a pretty good relationship with my managers and I don't have any problems with unreasonable delays um, for them getting me my information or my time. Um, but if you don't know how your management is and likely as a new steward, you're not going to. You're going to always, 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 I've got it in big letters, italicized, bolded on my outline, always get a copy of the signed request. And just as important as getting a copy of that, you should make sure that it has the date received by your supervisor. And the last thing that you want to have on there is, especially for your time request, it should have a supervisor's written confirmation of when that time will be provided. And um, I believe there are some past episodes of the podcast here to talk about what to do if you're getting your time request denied and everything like that. So um, go back, listen to those if you're having trouble. But always get copies of this stuff. And on your, like I said, on your time request, make sure they tell you when you're going to get your time. And hold them to it. If they're not giving it to you, like I said, you know, you may have to pursue another grievance, which hopefully this episode will help you do that too. So, because they're all going to be uh, pretty similar. All right, so the next thing here, we've got our information, we've got our time. Well, now you're ready to start investigating, now that you've got everything. Step one, again, big letters here on my outline, read everything. Read everything that you've requested that they've given you. Because the very first step to filing a grievance is fully understanding the situation. Uh, this past weekend, um, our national vice president, James Henry, uh, like I said, spoke to us, and he said a couple of things. And I, I, as he was talking, I just pulled out my phone and started typing what he was saying. And so I've, I've went back and worked a lot of those in here uh, because he said some really great things, and he expanded on a little bit a couple of the things I was already planning on talking about. But one of the things he said was, "Be methodical. Our job is part strategy and part skill." And so when I'm investigating and processing grievances, I've got a process that I follow, and that's not on accident. And in doing so, I make sure that I'm not missing anything from my file. And that's the first part of James' advice there. The second is this. As shop stewards, you have to be skilled. But if you have no strategy, you will not be effective. And the strategy majority comes into play in our remedies, and I'm going to talk about that. But I want to make a note here that I don't want the requirement of skill to deter you if you want to be a new shop steward, because skill always comes and develops over time. I am constantly learning something, whether it's from my branch president, from other branch presidents and stewards that I've gotten to know over the last couple of years, um, or if it's just me listening to from eight arbitration, if it's me jumping in the from eight arbitration Discord group, I'm in there all the time asking questions. Um, Sometimes I have the answers to questions too, but majority of the time I'm in there asking questions because the more you learn, the better you'll be as a shop steward. But let's get back to our investigation. 
So this is the part where I want to help you understand how we as shop stewards think, or at least how I think when I begin my investigation. Because it, it's, it's enough to know what everything is and know how to put it in there, but you can go to a whole nother level as a shop steward when you know how to think. And it doesn't mean just how shop stewards think. It's how arbitrators think too. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on. But that's, that's why I want to talk about this portion. So, depending on the size of your office, you're likely already going to have a pretty good idea of what took place. Um, you know, I used Article 8 earlier as an example. Um, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the employee everything reports of all my ODLs. And I'm asking myself a few questions. You know, I'm going to say, how long did they work? Because if my ODL did not work 12 hours plus a lunch, I highlight that on the EER, the Employee Everything Report, and I notate how much time they're still available for. So if I pull out one of my ODL's Employee Everything Reports and I see that they only worked 9 hours and 25 clicks, well, I know they've still got 2 hours and 75 clicks of availability. So I highlight that 925 and off to the side. Sometimes I'll do it on the Employee Everything Report itself, but to be safe, I like to put things off to the side. I write down their name, how much they work, 925, how much they're available for, 275. And I just make this running list. Now, if my violation's on a Friday, um, you know, I got to look at how many hours they've worked this week. So again, as a shop steward, you got to be very detail-oriented. And I still miss things from time to time. It can happen. It does happen. Um, but we try to be detail-oriented. So we got to make sure that we're looking at the entirety of the situation at all times. So I see them ODLs have some availability. Well, was there anybody that worked that shouldn't have, that, could, that they could have been used, the ODLs could have been used for? So I'm going to go to my non-ODL carriers. Were any of them mandated to work off their assignment? And if they were, I'll notate how long off the assignment that was worked by our work assignment carriers. and. Like I said, I'm doing it off to the side. Sometimes I'll do it in a spreadsheet. Um, just do what works best for you, of course, in this. Next thing I'm looking at were any of my eight-hour-only carriers required to work overtime on or off their assignment. And if they were, if it was on the assignment, I got to check the available auxiliary assistance. And this is where we as shop stewards have to be detail-oriented because in the case of an eight-hour-only carrier working on their assignment, the auxiliary assistance is at the straight time or regular overtime rate. So you can't just go punching in numbers. You got to make sure you understand exactly what's going on. Uh, but if it was off assignment, uh, again, we're going to go back to our ODLs, see if they worked 12 first. And the next thing I'm going to look at is we've already written it down, but how much total time was my ODL entitled to work? Um, and so, I'll, like I said, if we just go down, we write that down. And from there, I have a notation of all the facts. Now I can start looking at the relevant contract language. Now I'm not going to spend the entire time detailing Article 8, but my point here is that even if you think something happened, you have to remember that nothing happened if you can't prove it. And that's another point that um, James Henry made this weekend. Um, he went on to say that you document everything in your grievance file with the proper documents. Okay. Well, if, we're, if we have to document everything with the proper documents and we prove that it happened, how do we prove that something happened or did not happen? 
Well, we do that with a few things. We do that through the information that management has provided us. We do it with interviews with carriers. We do it with carrier statements, or we do it with interviews with management. And I'll go through each one of those. Um, And this won't be an exhaustive list, but um, it's the things that I use and have successfully used. Um, The number one thing you're doing is the information that management provides. And because as a shop steward, you have access to a wide variety of information. And management must, you know how much we love that word around here, must, when management must do something. We love that. They must give that information to you. And like I said, the employee everything report, I just talked about it earlier, it's one of the most common things that I use. And I'm bringing that up because I want to direct you guys to um, a resource that I use from time to time. Uh, but if you just go online and you search NELC Employee Everything Report, you're going to find a link to Branch 38. And they've published, um, it's called Analyzing the Employee Everything Report. And it's extremely detailed. So rather than just sitting there and trial and error the whole time, think, hoping that you get it right, get in there and read that. Learn that Employee Everything Report. And that's not the only thing they have. They have a wide variety of information. Um, so as shop stewards, another thing that we do is we don't just we don't just write grievances. We don't just listen to podcasts. We don't just go to regional training. We use our resources at all times. So get on Branch 38, get in their resources. It'll make you a better steward. All right. The next thing we're doing is we're doing it with interviews with our carriers. and. Well, that's exactly what it sounds like. So in your information request, you have the right to interview carriers on the clock. Now, I don't know how often you're going to be doing it, but it is a very powerful tool to have in your arsenal in the situations that it can be helpful. For example, uh, on these hip grievances that we're filing all over the country, and I know I filed one, you can interview every carrier and ask them, hey, did you receive this training? Did you take this online course? Uh, and you can also interview other postal employees and even customers. Now, I've never interviewed a customer. I've never been in a situation where I think I need to have interviewed a customer. Um, but on some rare occasions, I'll interview some clerks. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, when we had our start time changed this past time, um, we didn't believe that it was proper in accordance with the M39 to do that. So. We initiated a grievance. In my information request, I requested to interview uh, our clerk who does the hot case in the morning. And I had just a few questions for her. I interviewed her, you know, wrote them down, and they made it into my case file. The next thing you can do is you can interview management. So since we're on the topic of interviews, I love to interview my postmaster. Because uh, if I can get him to admit to violating the contract, well, that makes me feel pretty good because he knows I've caught him at that point but it can really glue together my entire case file. Everything that I prove, if I can show that my postmaster did it, knew he was doing it, did it intentionally, my case just gets that much stronger. Now, it's important to remember that we should very, very rarely ever be asking questions that we don't know the answer to, right? So since since I was just talking about it in the, the start time change, I already knew because you're in the, you're in your office carrying mail every day, just like I'm in my office carrying mail every day. I see what goes on. 
I knew with pretty high certainty that they had never conducted a piece count on the mail to determine that 80% of the mail was not at or on the cases. I pretty well knew that what they were doing is just going around with a measuring stick like they do, sticking it in a tub, writing down some number that, you know, may, may or may not be accurate. And they punch it in to do us. So when I interviewed my postmaster, I said, have you ever conducted a piece count? No, of course not. Why would we do that? Already, but I already knew the answer to that, but I got him to admit to it, okay? So you also don't want to be asking questions that could potentially be hurting your case file. And, you know, especially if you're a brand new steward and you maybe just don't know exactly what the right questions to be asking are, it might be best to phrase your questions as a yes or no question. And what I say, the reason I say that is it'll help you to avoid management saying things that could hurt your case. Because you got to remember that when you go into an interview, you've probably got your questions typed out, and I do, and I always write down management's answers exactly as they say them. Just, so, just like when we go in an investigative interview, when management says something, we write it. Same thing applies here. So if I've got four questions and they all answer great, and on that same page, uh, I ask a question and the manager's answer hurts my case, it's pretty hard to exclude that from your case file. So just make sure that whatever you're asking management, they can't hurt your case with their answer. Okay. Um, and to wrap this thing up, one of my favorite questions I always ask is, did you receive any instruction from any higher levels of management to do whatever they did? Because oftentimes, and we know this, that managers here at the station level, they really have no authority. Um, they just do whatever the POOM tells them and the POOM does whatever the district manager tells them. And it's like a game of telephone. By the time it gets to our manager's, they have no idea what's going on. They're just saying crap and, you know, so the reason I ask that is if I get a postmaster telling me that, oh yeah, the poom told me I need to do whatever, change the start time, which the poom did. Maybe I need to interview that poom. Hey, why are you changing my start time? So the interviews of management are a very powerful tool. Um, the last thing I use pretty successfully from time to time is carrier statements. Your mileage may vary on this one depending on um, you know, your carriers and, and how willing they are to write a statement, how well they write a statement. Um, as shop stewards, it's very important that we have more integrity than management and the reason I'm bringing this up now is with my carrier statements, I never write a statement and have a carrier sign it. Um, I have done that in the past, and looking back on it, I just I don't think it was the right move. But your carriers can write statements um, on different issues, whatever's coming out. Um, and an example of a great carrier statement, they don't have to be long can be on March 14th, 2023, we were instructed by supervisor so-and-so 
In a stand-up talk that we only had one hour of a.m. office time and we were required to move to street time at 9 a.m. That's as effective as a carrier statement as you could ever get. Because it tells you a specific date, it tells you a specific supervisor, where the instruction was given, what the instruction was. And then from there, they're going to sign it. And I've got that big letters, bold, italicized. You need your carriers to be signing these statements and they're going to date it. Now, the reason it's so paramount that our carrier signs their statements is management at Step B can attempt to throw out your carrier statements simply because it's not signed. I think that's a little silly, but, you know, if I had a manager write me a statement and didn't sign it, I would probably try to throw it out too. So just remember that's part of our skill. That's part of our strategy is that everything that we put on paper is signed. All right, next section here. Well, that's great. How do I actually build a file? Maybe you already knew everything I just said, but you just don't know how to build a file. Well, good news. The hard part's over. You've already identified the violation of the contract, the specifics of that violation, and now you're ready to make your carriers whole for that violation. Now, this is where the philosophy is going to be wildly different from branch to branch. So you do what your branch does. But if your branch doesn't have an established procedure or if, you know, if you're like me and you're working closely with your branch president to develop a method, just take my way. Um, very first thing I do, I open up my word processor. Now, especially if you're in a really small branch where you don't have a bunch of support, you may not want to go out and buy Microsoft Word if you don't have it. Well, that's okay because there are lots of free options. Um, and I like to use LibreOffice or OpenOffice, either one of those. Uh, they're free, open source. They're great. They mirror Microsoft Word. Um, so, you know, just remember, you don't have to be spending a bunch of money on all kinds of different tools to do your job. Um, and in that, I have a template that's saved in my branch logo and some, some other basic information in the header um, that's going to remain pretty much the same for each one. And in building our files, well, this is another point that James Henry made this weekend, was that we play the long game. And now that we're starting to build our file, it's where we're going to start setting all of our pieces into play. And Corey talks a lot about playing chess while management's playing checkers. The grievance file is where you can set yourself apart as a chess player rather than someone who's playing checkers. I like to write an issue statement in every one of my files. And an issue statement is going to look like did management at your installation violate articles, whatever it violated, when it did whatever it did? And if so, what is the appropriate remedy? Now, my reason for doing that is really twofold. Uh, the first thing it does, it takes a little bit of work out of my branch president. You know, I just send it over to him. He copies, pastes, and, you know, saves him five or ten minutes, however long it takes to figure out what the issue statement should be. And the second thing is if I do not allege that a violation has occurred in my issue statement, then I shouldn't have anything about it in the case file. You want your case files to be straightforward and free from a whole bunch of extra documents. And that's another point that James Henry made this past weekend. We document with the proper documents. Proper again, telling you guys all the words I've got wrote in big letters. That's a big, big letter word. Proper documents. So, for example, uh, if I allege that management worked John Doe improperly instead of using Jane Doe from the ODL, I don't have the, the employee everything report for every other carrier in there. It just makes your files messy and a lot harder to follow. 
And the thing, too, you want to remember that your file could end up in the hands of an arbitrator who doesn't know anything about your installation. You're going to tell a complete story, but you're not going to include a bunch of information that could later confuse the issue. And the same former branch president in my branch who told me that we're telling a story, he likes to use the expression a lot, that we're painting a picture. And that's exactly what we're doing. Through our case file, we're painting a picture. We're telling an arbitrator exactly what happened, how it happened, when it happened, where it happened. But we're not telling him what color shirt somebody was wearing, right? Uh, and to that point there, uh, I'm going to bring up another point here that James Henry made this weekend. He says, process every grievance as if it's going to arbitration. Because even if it doesn't, at the very least, you get more experience doing your job as a shop steward. And I think that is the best way to wrap up what I was just talking about there. All right. So the next thing I do is I have a section called facts. Now, it's kind of my adaptation of the undisputed facts and contentions that are handled at the formal level. All I'm doing in this part is I'm just stating facts that I discovered throughout my investigation. Another thing to remember, though, is if it goes in our facts section, we must be prepared to show it. Remember in school when your math teacher was telling you to show your work? Well, it turns out they were setting you up to be the most effective shop stewards you can be. We always show our work. So, for example, if I write letter carrier Jane Doe is on the 12-hour ODL, I'm going to have a copy of the ODL sign-up sheet in my case file. Now. As it happens, sometimes you don't have that in your case file. Uh, you know, at that point, your formal representative can put Jane Doe is on the 12-hour ODL in the undisputed facts, and management can sign off on it. Um, but we don't want to do that to our formals. We want to have everything in there for them. Um, we want to, my philosophy is that I'm taking as much work off of my formal representative, my branch president, that I can when I do these grievances. All right. Another thing, if I wrote letter care, John Doe worked one hours and 15 clicks off his assignment on City 4, well, the tax employee everything report is going to show that. And I like to highlight the portions on there in my employee everything reports. I'll write, you know, when they moved to City 4, when they moved back to their route. Um, and then sometimes I'll write the total time, you know, on there. I'm just showing all my work so that when I'm in the meeting, uh, I have everything right there and just available to me. After that, I'm writing contentions. And if you guess that these aren't necessary for the informal step A, you would be correct. However, just like in the facts section, it's where I detail what I found. So a basic contention, management at the your installation violated Article 85D of the National Agreement when it required John Doe to work off his assignment before maximizing all available ODL letter carriers. So again, if I'm writing it in that section, I must be able to show it in the file. It's the checks and balances is, is what it is to me. If I write it in my issue statement, it goes in my facts. If I write it in my facts, it goes in my contentions. If it's in my contentions, it's in my facts. If it's in my facts, it's in my issue statement. So another thing that I like to do, especially when I'm writing these out, I like to imagine that I'm going to hand this file over to my neighbor and I'm going to have my neighbor be able to understand exactly what violation occurred. So I like to refrain from using as much postal jargon as I can. Um, obviously, you're going to use ODL, CCA, PTF, 
uh, those are pretty well established within the contract itself. Um, but, you know, for example, there's a million different ways you can say worked off their assignment because our national agreement says worked off their assignment. Um, you know, you may, in your office, you may call it a drag, a bump, a handoff, a takeoff, a pivot, a boost. That list can go on and on. But they all mean the same thing. Worked off their assignment. And that's the language that contract uses. So in our files, the best thing we can do is just mirror the language that's in the JCAM or the contract. Or we can mirror the language of arbitrators. It's another thing I do a lot. I know Corey says it all the time how much he loves to just to sit and read arbitration decisions. Well, I do too. So, you know, in a case where I'm citing an arbitrator, you know, I'll flip over to the discussion portion uh, and I'll just read how the arbitrator was thinking through the case. And then when they're awarding, they'll often just write things that when they're explaining why they're doing what they're doing. I like just to kind of just copy and paste that language in, especially because, you know, if, if we're if this file does end up all the way to arbitration and I'm citing an arbitrator and an arbitrator's reading the file and they read things that kind of sound like they would write, maybe it plays in our favor. I don't know. Um, but another thing, I, another reason I like to do that is arbitrators, when they write things, they can often condense a very complex issue into a pretty small space and have it be way more clear than anything I could come up, ever come up with. Um, you know, so I'll just put those in my write up from time to time. Well, now let's talk about arguably the most important part of our grievances it's the remedy. So, this is the part where you get to ask for money or whatever else you deem appropriate. And obviously, it's going to be highly dependent on the nature of the violation. Um, but some things that you should include in every remedy. Um, you should always say management will cease and desist violating article and then whatever your grievance is about here. Uh, another thing I like to have is any and all money awarded as a result of this settlement will be paid no later than seven days from the date of this agreement and the union will be provided proof of payment no later than seven days from the date of payment. Now, I'm going to talk about that for just a second. Um, there's a reason that you put management on the clock for when they pay these grievances out. They do not like to pay you. Even though you're entitled to it, even though they've agreed to pay it, they do not like to pay it. You have to put them on a clock. And, you know, if you don't, you can end up in a situation where you've got a postmaster sitting on your old settlements. Yeah, I'm going to pay them soon. You know, just put them on a clock. And then as soon as that clock is up, if your guys haven't been paid, um, you know, you should be finding out from them. Go talk to your supervisor. Hey, why have these grievances not been paid? And then from there, seven days are going to come and you don't have proof of that payment. Well, now you've got another grievance to file. So, and it just builds your position. All of this just builds. And that's what you're doing. You're laying the foundation here. So the next thing you want to have in every agreement is any other remedy that the DRT or an arbitrator deems appropriate. Now, you want to put that in there because you don't want to tie the hands of step B when they get your case and your step B rep might be going, well, God, we should be paying twice what they're asking for here. If you don't have that in there, they can't ask for it. Same thing with arbitrators. 
if an arbitrator is looking at your case file and they think, oh man, we should really be paying, I should be awarding double what they're asking for, but it doesn't say it in there, they can't award it to you. So give them all the authority to add remedies. And the last thing you want to have in there, uh, this is more so for the formal step A's, um, is you want to have this sediment will be precedent setting and citable for your installation. Now, the reason that I say that is, according to our contract, formal step A's are not precedent setting or citable. So you want to make it that way. So if you, in a formal step A, get $10 per day for whatever the violation is, and you settle at the formal step A, well, the next time you come around, your postmaster can say, well, it's not precedent setting. I don't have to give you $10 this time. I'm going to give you nothing. If you make it citable and precedent setting, and you get the $10 per day for the violation, the next time around, you're filing agreements, you look at your postmaster and say, look, I've got a precedent setting agreement right here to $10 a day. I want 10 again. And then on top of that, I want another 10 because you continually violate our national agreement. You continually violate our contract. So these are the things that are really going to help you when it comes to getting escalated monetary awards. So now I get to share um, some more pieces here um, that James Henry shared with us over the weekend. Um, I think this is probably the best place to put them. Um, we want to make sure all of our settlements are enforceable for the future. Because I just talked about it a minute ago that we're always building and building and building. So if these are enforceable, we, we build up to the next level. So this is where we're playing the long game. That's another thing he said. We're always playing the long game as stewards. He went on to say that if we chase the money, our remedy dies with that grievance. But if we chase the enforceable language, the money will always come. If our language is just pay so-and-so X amount of dollars, okay, they got paid, great. Well, now what? What happens when it happens again? We just pay them again? Or when it happens again, do we get to look at management and say, hey, you've already agreed to cease and desist. You've already agreed to stop. You've already said you'll stop doing it again. You've already agreed that future violations of the same nature may, may result or will result, is even better, will result in an escalated monetary award. You've already agreed to that. Why are we here having this meeting? Not only do I want him paid for the time that he's owed, I want him 50% more than that. Not only do I want him, not only do I want all my carriers paid $10 a day for whatever the violation is, I want $20 a day. I want $40 a day. If we go back to some of our episodes way back and we think about Lake Charles, Louisiana. Corey talked about it a lot, and um, actually I reached out to A.J. Barreau, branch president out there at Lake Charles, Louisiana, and I talked to him for a few minutes on the phone And because at that time I was looking to start building escalated monetary awards. And the reason I talked to him was they... Got and Corey talks about it, and you can you can go and read the arbitration sites if you've got access to that. They get a thousand dollars for every carrier, every single time Article Eight is violated. 
How did they do that? They made language enforceable in the future. They laid the groundwork for almost 10 years. It may have been over 10. A decade. They laid the groundwork. They made language enforceable. And they built and built and built. That's what you can do as a shop steward. And of that enforceable language, cease and desist. Management understands the power of cease and desist. And that's another thing, like I said, James Henry was talking about this weekend. And he said, the more that management resists you want to cease and desist, the more we must persist. Management does not want us to have cease and desist language because it is so powerful. It means one thing and one thing only. All right. And the last thing James Henry talked about was we, we have to place emphasis on our settlements saying what we need them to say. And like I said it earlier, we don't want to tie the hands of step B with a weak remedy request and then not even give them the power to step it up. Our remedies should be the part that scares management because they know that not only are we going to make our carers whole for the violations, not only are we going to instruct and tell management, hey, stop doing that. Don't do it again. Cease and desist. Not only that, they know that the next time they do something, we're going to ask for more. And then they do it again, we're going to ask for more and more and more and more. Until they stop violating the terms of our agreement. It is not optional. M1517. Compliance with Grievance Settlements Award is not optional. Put that in every Article 15 grievance. It is not optional. Complying with an agreement, complying with our contract is not optional. Management, get them to agree to cease and desist. And I know a lot of you out there are having a hard time at some of your higher levels, some of your step B, some of your business agents not giving you cease and desists. Just persist on. Ask for it anyway, every time. You will get it. You will always, in the end, if you persist, you will always get everything that you're asking for. All right, I've spent a little bit too much time on that. Um, kind of got off on a, on a little bit. I got away from my outline for a minute. But what we're going to do now with our files, we're going to put them together. Put them all together. So I like to order my files. Um, the first thing I have in there is I have all three pages of the 8190 on top. Next is my write-up, and that's that document that we talked about earlier. We're writing our issue statement, our facts, contentions, and we're asking for our remedy. Paperclip that together, put it right underneath the 8190. Then I've got everything that proves my allegations. So it could be my employee everything report, my ODL sign-up sheet, a carrier statement, my notes from the interview, anything. Whatever it is, put it in there. Next thing, I'm going to have all the relevant contract language printed out. So I go online to NALC.org, and I just go to the JCAM on there, pull it up, print out all the pages um, that contain the specific language that I'm talking about. So if it's 85D, print that out, um, just whatever it is. If we're using any M documents, like I said, we're citing M1517 in every Article 15 grievance, I hope. I'm going to have M1517 in there. Then after that, I'm going to have any historical cases on the same issue. Now, most of the time, I'm only going to have the Step B decision, uh, the Formal A papers, the Arbitration Award, whatever it is. I'm, I'm not going to have the entire case file. You can, uh, but it just 
you know, again, can make your file a little bit messy. Uh, and then from there, at the very back, it's going to have all my just requests for time and information. Um, I just put those in the folder because it just keeps everything all together. Um, and then if I have to have a time limit extension, I put that in the back as well. Um, and then now this is for the informal step A's. Every, all the unused stuff that I've requested, I put a binder clip on that and put it in the back of the folder. Now, especially, especially if you're a formal on this, you're not going to send all that crap to step B. They don't want it and they shouldn't be getting it. The only reason I put it in there is so that my formal step A has access to all of it. Um, if he thinks he needs to make a contention that I didn't make uh, or just needs something to document anything, he's just got access to all that in the file. Um, from there, he's going to take everything out, throw it away, shred it, whatever he's doing with it um, before he goes to the formal. Um, and that's it. That's your file. Now you're ready to go to the meeting. And I've been going almost an hour here, so I'm not going to talk too much in depth about the meeting. Um, just briefly, you know, you want to have everything together. Um, I like to just kind of go through my write-up that I did um, and show supporting documents where I need to. Uh, just make sure that I don't miss anything. Um, and then I have a informal step A paper that I use that just commemorates the informal step A meeting. Um, and then myself and the supervisor will both sign that. Um, like I said, just to commemorate that we did meet. Um, so, all right. Well, I think that's going to do it for me. Um, you guys go out there, be effective, uh, be effective for your members. And I hope this was helpful to you. Uh, I tried to cover as much as I could while still keeping it, you know, under an hour. Um, so, but yeah, you guys out, go out there and get it. And uh, I'm going to turn everything back over now to Corey, who is going to be recording his outro from the future and stitching all this together. <laughs>